You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Rick Howick is in studio with me. It's so great to have you back for yet another episode. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm glad that I was able to come back again. This has been delightful. You have been patient with me wanting to talk about abortion for an hour, getting into theology, but now we are going to get into your story. And for those who do not know Rick, he is a host of Orange County Catholic Radio. He's had years in radio, over 20 years in Catholic education, teaching. Now he's teaching secularly right now at the university level as he works on his PhD in church history at UCR, which is the University of California, Riverside. Yes. So you have a fascinating story as you are a convert to the Catholic faith. Yeah, I started off uh, when I was a child in a family that was really only marginally Methodist. Um, In fact, if you go back far enough, I came across in a covered wagon on the way out to California in the 1960s. Okay, it was actually, (laughs) it was a camper truck, but it was kind of close. Close enough. From from Ohio, actually. And um so we were kind of Methodists, and we kind of went to church once in a while. Uh, we kind of stopped going when the minister's wife took off with one of the Sunday school teachers. And oh. then we kind of went on, on Easter and on Christmas, but that was it. Isn't that so convenient? <laughs> you know, something happens in the church. You can just go to just another leave. one, well, another you creed. You know, it works. You or know. just choose not to go because there's no, no obligation. Uh-huh. You're supposed to go, but unlike Catholics, it's kind of an unwritten rule that you're supposed to not abandon your fellowship. Catholics know if you intentionally abandon your fellowship, you are guilty of mortal sin. So that's a whole other issue we can talk about. But as I therefore was raised, I was kind of raised in a, in a non-active Christian household. It okay. was culturally Christian. So Christmas and Easter, but Easter was baskets of Easter bunny mostly. <laughs> and Christmas was the living Christmas tree if we went to a, a church service, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And when I got into high school, I began to uh, become interested and um, very much so, in fact, in high school. Mm -hmm. And that was where I... Something happened when you were about 13, too, though. Well, I had a couple of things happen when I was 13. There was one incident where I had walked down to Woolco to buy this great big King News Bible, and I read it through from cover to cover. But while I'm reading it through, you go through the Old Testament first. Mm-hmm. And I was convinced that Judaism was correct. So I announced to my mom that I was going to become kosher. Mm-hmm. And so I d- decided to stop eating pork. Now that worked for a while until one day my dad uh, came in and we were having a pork roast. And there on my plate was beef bologna. And um, I, I did not face martyrdom, but I thought I might at that point. But he <laughs> said, you get the... <laughs> Actually, yeah, <laughs> but that's okay. At the time, when you're 13, you want to do a lot of things that you're not so sure about at 54. I would to witness that conversation between you and your father. <laughs> oh, very. And it was very short, but he basically <laughs> talked to my mother, which was, get him to a minister now. So I went and talked to Reverend Poche. And Reverend Poche was a Baptist minister, and we went round and round about... I had no problem accepting that Jesus was the Messiah, but I was kind of caught in that whole Seventh-day Adventist interpretation of, 
when does when do we really get rid of uh, the kosher laws? And finally, the minister's wife stuck her head around the corner. Why don't you try Acts 10, dear? <laughs> and, and that was really all it took. Because if you're mm-hmm. familiar with Acts 10, it's where Peter is told uh, to kill and eat. There's just all these these different animals, clean he and unclean. Dream. Yes. He doesn't just have it once. He's not the, always the sharpest tool in the shed. God has to tell him <laughs> three times. And he argues with God about it. But in the end, he understands that God is saying that the Gentiles can come in. And he does it through saying the kosher rules are not necessarily involved anymore mm-hmm. in the mind of a 13 year old that was very important so briefly i was a pretend jew for a while <laughs> so pork was kosher again. well it becomes kosher again yeah <laughs> i like bacon now it's very good i had dated a jewish girl for a while and she would send me into carl's jr to get the western bacon cheeseburgers because you not only as a jew can't have the meat with the milk because that's that's also against kosher laws but of course the bacon on there just mm-hmm. but anyway <laughs> well, no was that her eating the bacon yeah burger? she liked the, oh, she, 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 she couldn't she couldn't go in <laughs> she, uh, if she went in and got caught by her parents she'd be in trouble so i was a bad influence <laughs> yeah. well, at least the talk of her anyway <laughs> so i go off to college and um a couple of things happen, uh, including a, I, I got to know a Catholic girl who, that was my very first semester there, and she was a little bit older than I was, but a very sweet person. And we're having this, we're, we're passing notes back and forth in a very boring class, which, of course, I've, now that I've become a teacher, it was anathema, you never do. But that <laughs> was how I met. flirtation. <laughs> <laughs> but we were passing notes back and forth about what we do, and and I, I asked her why she gave up dancing at Disneyland because it was one of the things that she'd done. She'd been, she was trained as a dancer when she was a young girl and she was able to use it during the summers, but she doesn't do it anymore at Disneyland. And she told me that she had a brain tumor. And this struck up a conversation that lasted the next two years and we grew very close. And I watched her go through the end of her life those last couple of years. And last year and a half or so, really. And it had a profound effect on me to watch someone face death the way that she did as a part of life. She lived more, frankly, in her last year and a half than I think a lot of people live in lifetimes of 80 and 90 years. She was also a Catholic. And um, that had an effect on me, which we can talk about later. But... The, the bottom line was it, it left me with a, a first impression of Catholicism that was different from what I had been taught about Catholics as an evangelical. Mm. Because as a Protestant evangelical, I had been taught that Catholics really weren't Christian, that Catholics try to work their way to heaven, that Catholics are therefore not saved and are going to hell. The whore of Babylon. You and know you get it. Here mm-hmm. is a person who clearly had a, a faith in Jesus Christ and yet loved the Eucharist mm-hmm. and had a, a devotion to God, but also devotion to God through Mary. And this was a person who loved her faith and was clearly an on-fire Christian for Jesus Christ. And as you say, living fully in her what she knew were her final days. And, and that, that becomes important a little bit later on. Okay. So I go off to uh, teach for a couple of years after I, I graduated. Uh, I, I had gotten, she, she dies, and it had, that, it had an effect on me. Now, were you two dating? We were dating, uh, sort of. It, 
it, it was a complicated relation because we were friends. Right. And I guess I would leave it at that. We were mm-hmm. good friends. And um, when she died, uh, it it the effect on me was to really take a second look at my life fully. I had been on the I want to be a politician track. So I was a political science major. I was going to go to law school and mm-hmm. and waste my life in, in law. Sorry, those of you who are lawyers I, you out there. I know many, many friends that are lawyers. <laughs> I know many of you, though, who want to go into politics and end up in theology and education. It's amazing how that works. God's got a sense of humor. <laughs> By the way, for anyone just joining us, that is Rick Howick. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. We're talking about his conversion story to the Catholic faith, and we'll be talking a little later on about that really annoying statement. And maybe you yourself say it, and it is, you know, I'm Catholic. I love the Catholic Church, but I really think the church needs to get ahead with the times and change its teaching on you fill in the blank. We'll be getting to that a little later. So, Rick, continue with your story. You know, this woman has a huge impact on you after her death and how she lives her life. Yeah. And that caused me to therefore add the I wanted to go into religion. Mm -hmm. And so I added the religious studies major. So I graduated with both political science and religious studies and looked at seminary. I flew up to seminary, took a look around, looked at the cost, didn't have the money, decided to wait. So I began teaching and I taught special ed at, um, in Riverside Unified for two years under what they call the emergency credential. And I taught the severely handicapped, um, older teens. So these were kids that were from roughly 11 through 21. And my first year, we had ambulatory, meaning walking around, and non-ambulatory, those who were in wheelchairs in the same classroom. Only six kids, and I had two aides because it was a pretty severe class. There's a reason why they put me in there, because an emergency credential is where you just have your degree, and they'll grant your credential because they don't have enough credential teachers that want it. Mm. No one wanted that class. They had credential teachers, but they all refused that class. So I got it. It was challenging. It was very challenging. I mean, it, one of the things that we, we learned right away was that whatever it is that we taught them, by the time they left, that's what they were going to be able to do for the rest of their lives because they're going to not progress from there. Mm-hmm. So if we can get them to go to the grocery store with us and learn some of those social skills so that they now can have some freedom in the rest of their lives to be able to go to the grocery store with people, to go to the grocery store and do those kinds of things, they were able to do it. So I, I liked that and I did it for two years, but I really wanted to go to seminary and I was given a scholarship to go. Um, Bill Hewlett of Hewlett Packard had um, given some money both to a Catholic seminary and to the Presbyterian seminary. Oh, His wife was Catholic and he was Presbyterian <laughs> and on behalf of both, he, he, that's how he divided it up. And we all, we actually went down to meet uh, Mr. Hewlett, uh, Hewlett um, at one point to say mm-hmm. thank you. but. There were six of us who were given the scholarship, so I was I had my way basically paid for to go to seminary. And they were they were looking for Presbyterians who were a little more conservative at this rather liberal school. Conservative religiously or politically? Religiously, but mm-hmm. that often goes hand in hand for a lot of people at the time. Um, it was a fairly liberal seminary. I mean, when I first got there, the the big um, scandal on campus was that they had had a, a Wiccan witch come in to lead a lecture, but she didn't lead it from like Geneva Hall. She led it from the pulpit in the chapel. And then at the end led prayers to the underworld from the pulpit in the chapel. And of course, all of 
Presbyterian media was up in arms about it, and the seminary was in the doghouse, and that's what I walked into because that had happened just the semester before. Well, isn't it well, okay? So, what year was this? I'm curious because oh, right now we're seeing a huge growth. I mean, I think they're actually more. Is it? It's not Presbyterians. Is it more? Eighty nine, I think, was when it was. Okay, eighty nine. Like yeah. I think they're saying there are more witches today growing which cult and there are some sects of Christianity in the United States. The Unitarians have really embraced um, a number of people out of the Wiccan category, whatever you want to call them. But the Unitarians are kind of an interesting breed under themselves. Let's not not get too far (laughs) here to the varieties of of, uh, Christian experience. But I was at seminary and I spent, uh, it's a three-year program to get your master's in divinity and then get training and pass your exams. And I went through my three years and added a fourth year to get a, a master's, a second master's in early church history. And the, I passed all my ordination exams. There's, there's two major exams you have to pass. Uh, well, there's actually three. And I, I passed all of them. And um, I was accepted to Vanderbilt then to do the PhD and was finishing up that master's in early church history. And I got into a discussion with some friends of mine who were Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm going to convert these people. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to bring them into the, into the, I'm going to get them out of that dark Catholic faith. What was your bring problem with Catholicism, though? I still had this latent belief that they weren't experiencing the fullness of the gospel because. Okay. They weren't Christian. My, well, they were. I, I, had, I had been convinced that they were Christian, but they had, they had all these trappings of of ritualism that was that was like gunk holding them back. If they could just be free of it all, they would then be able to sail with all the other Protestants and do so wonderfully as the Protestants had been doing. <laughs> and I have to give Protestants credit while I'm taking a, a look back for a moment. They do so much with what they do have. I mean, they have a love for Jesus that is on fire for many of them. They love the Bible, and that's a very good thing. And they're willing to to dedicate their lives almost completely to that whole calling, uh, unlike many Catholics. So giving them their due. The problem, of course, is they're incomplete. Mm -hmm. They love Jesus and they love the Bible, but they don't have sacrament. They don't have sacramentality. And they have another issue, and that, of course, is the the idea of faith alone. Mm -hmm. It's a very dangerous heresy because if you believe in faith alone, it also means that nothing you can do is going to send you to hell because after all you have had a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So you're free to defect. You basically have a get out of hell free card tattooed on your soul mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. And you, it's not that you now have license to do anything, but you have license to you're do justified. anything. It's justification you're, written in. As Luther put it, you're a cow patty in the snow, but God will cover you with the snow so he won't smell you. And it doesn't work that way. And that's a problem because if you believe it works that way, you're in danger of committing horrible sin that will send you to hell. So it's not that all Protestants are going to hell, because when we talk about there's no salvation outside the church, I think there's a lot of Protestants who are going to be very surprised when they wake up in heaven and find out that they were let in as part of the Catholic Church right. without realizing it because they love Jesus and God supplied the rest. 
I don't have a problem with that. That that comes right out of uh, Lumen Gentium, I think, right. chapter 10. Well, in the Catechism, the Catholic Church says you are bound by the sacraments, bound to the church, yeah. essentially, but God is not bound by a sacrament. So if someone lives maybe mm. a completely secular life who maybe yeah. lives in a tribe and doesn't know Catholicism, but sure. by natural law lives a good and wholesome life to the best of their ability, yeah. there's potential. Or someone who maybe hasn't truly been exposed to Catholicism, so they're or an not evangelical culpable, right? who was told that Catholicism is the whore of Babylon right. and has their that beat into their whole life head. and see nothing yeah. else. So what ended up happening, of course, in this in this um, this crusade I developed to save my friends was from Catholicism. From Catholicism <laughs> was that I became Catholic. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a long story, but... So what are the key things? That's Rick Howick. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. What are maybe, let's say, your two biggest issues with Catholicism and the three things that really brought you in? Yeah, my biggest issues really had to do with authority. Mm. Uh, the Bible is the authority in the Protestant church. And what became clear to me was the Bible gets its authority from the Catholic church. <laughs> it, it, there is no... When, when Jesus ascends into heaven... It's not like the Bible then falls out of his robe on the way up. It's put together slowly over time by Catholic bishops, yeah. <laughs> and they're saving it. And yeah. the reason why we have 27 books in the New Testament where Revelation is in, but the Gospel of Peter is out, is because of a bunch of Catholic bishops who said so. There is no, no ordained table of contents that's there, and that's all from the authority of the Catholic Church. That's something you don't really think about when you're studying most of your history in seminary from Luther on, which is essentially what most Protestant seminaries do. Now, you've studied history, not just church history. You have a perspective that recognizes when we just look at a small section of history, we miss the whole picture. Yeah. It's very important to know the big picture. Mm -hmm. So right now, I'm working on Tertullian, who is... Mm -hmm from about the year 200 in Carthage, which is in North Africa. He's an early church father. Who got into some trouble later on. But yeah. but the, the bottom line is, I will not be able to understand him if I don't understand what's going on in the rest of the Roman Empire mm -hmm. and what went on the 50 years or so before and what happens in the echo 50 years later. Or, or actually a little bit more than that because there's another guy named St. Cyprian who picks up on Tertullian and is like Tertullian mini me. And this is this is how it's relevant why we're talking about for those who say, okay, here's a church history. Maybe you've not studied it. Why is this important? It's relevant to your conversion because you saw the historical timeline and reality of the Catholic faith and the separation that takes place with the Protestant Reformation, but also how arguments, whether it's an abortion, an abortion debate or a debate about salvation, we get to a point where we misunderstand something and then have to clarify it and make sure that clarification is understood 200 years later still well and this is i think when i go back to the idea of authority for me it was directly about the papacy mm -hmm. but it's not as simple as what a lot of people will put i've heard some apologists say some rather i cringe a little bit and some of the things that'll be said because it really isn't historically as simple as what they'll say but in the end if you're looking at the authority of the church jesus christ gives that authority to the apostles and it is through the apostles that the church is founded on their leadership. Their leadership becomes bishops, and in their earliest forms don't look a lot like the bishops we have today, mm -hmm. but we still have leadership that comes through them, and that leadership stays in a church that hones itself through the Holy Spirit of God, 
And it takes that leadership form in Rome. And we see that Rome is then understood to be the successor to Peter, who very clearly in Matthew is given authority, and the successor to Paul, who was the authority that was given to him to go to the Gentiles. And that was why that sea was the leadership. And that leadership continued. When does that come to an end? There is no time when that comes to an end. When you have a renegade monk in the 1500s from Germany come down and say, it's all over, on what authority does he say that? Mm -hmm. Is he pointing out some realistic problems that he sees? Well, yeah, but a solution to just throw everything out wasn't the solution. In fact, what he did by challenging the church led to what we would now call the Counter-Reformation and the Council of Trent, Mm -hmm. which Which helped codify it helped codify so much that was that was good and holy and it it reminded us we are this not that mm-hmm. so when it's here's where we've messed up at times where human yeah, faulty has sure. fallen away from what the church has been teaching bishops do not leave right? your parishes for very do not leave your diocese for very long you may not go travel around the riviera and stay oh, away you oh, got to stay is in, that relevant today at all i'm just <laughs> saying <laughs> but that's that was from trent and that was in reaction to what the Protestants had challenged them on. It didn't mean that Protestants were right. On the contrary, the Catholic Church had it right, but it had been so eclipsed by many things. Thank you, Luther, but you know what? You shouldn't have left. You should have challenged. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. You can agitate and challenge from within. And we see a number of Catholics doing a version of that today, some Mm -hmm. better than others. But you're not supposed to just leave. And that was part of the problem. Mm -hmm. But what we discovered was we're not saved by faith alone. We're saved by faith and follow through. Mm -hmm. And the scripture is not authoritative on itself. On the contrary, its authority comes as a record of revelation interpreted by the church. Mm -hmm. And those were codified in that Council of Trent. What I came to discover was that the Catholic Church never lost that authority. And in addition to that, sacramentality is a whole new you want to come it's a whole new ball game for Christians because sacramentality is that physical spiritual dynamic that Protestants don't deal with they deal with faith alone and it it takes away the physical component they don't know what to do with the woman who has the hemorrhage who isn't cured until she touches the garment of Jesus she's got faith just before she's got faith afterwards but it's only until he feels the power go out like an electrical current mm-hmm. And he has to ask, who touched me? There's a physical, spiritual dynamic there that Protestants don't have a good way to explain, that Catholics do. Well, that's the appeal to our humanity, appeal to, again, we talked about this on the last episode, body and soul, where body and soul and God worked in physical reality. He intentionally became a physical person. He didn't show up as a spirit. He was born of a woman, took on a legal father, and engaged in real human relationships. Yes, and it's it's that reality that I think hits. I had a, a, a good opportunity to meet with a very holy priest, uh, Father Cozina, uh, who was out of St. Margaret Mary's in uh, Oakland. And uh, he's the one who brought me into the church formally. Uh, we had a number of different conversations go on, and a lot of that was very theoretical and theological. But I had a very interesting encounter when early on in this process, when I had visit, I was asking the question about what am I doing here with my friends? I'm trying to convert when I'm actually having second thoughts. I went to a Catholic mass and it happened to be during Lent. 
So it was an evening mass that was going on that they were doing as some sort of a, of a, of a thing there. It was right near the Presbyterian Seminary. And I remember them coming and I heard the bells and they came in and they were doing the thing. Everyone had been, had been kneeling and I was sitting and they all stood up. So, okay, I stood up. You'd win in Rome, do what the Romans do. Mm-hmm. And they came up there and then they did their mass. And as they did their mass, remember as he's ready to say the consecration, here's these people all kneeling at the consecration. They all believe that's going to be Jesus up there. And just then it dawned on me, what if it is? And then I heard the bells and I felt this shiver go through me. It just absolutely overwhelmed me. That was my first encounter with the what ifs. And that's all you really have to ask. What if it's true? In the presence of the Eucharistic Lord, it being open and being in his presence. And there's a power to that. Sometimes we have to be open in order to acknowledge the power of the presence that he is living out right in front of us. We'll be right back with Rick Howick getting into the church needs to change on this. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. We are back in studio with Rick Howick. He's been sharing with us his conversion story. And I love that openness at the end of what you last shared of how here you are. You're trying to convert your friends. You show up in a Catholic church. You you said, you know, you're doing as they do, kneeling, standing and so forth. And here's a time for the consecration. And you say, what if that is God present here? And it sends a shiver through me. Now, was that signal graces or was that just the emotional question mark that was going through me. Yes, you define what the yes is. I don't know. But I, I know that it it was a reality to that that I still remember today that was overwhelming to me. A couple of other things happened. I, I had the opportunity to get to know some people, uh, one of whom uh, ended up in, um, I won't talk about her directly, but ended up in, in Patrick Madrid's book, uh, Surprised by a Truth. Uh, and this is before she came into the church, she and her husband at the same time, but they had been in process longer than I was. So I had dinner at their place and, uh, they had another apologist come over to kind of talk to all of us a little bit. He and I got into a couple of arguments about a couple of things. It was <laughs> Those interesting. Those are always great, aren't they? They can be, they, they, they can be. Uh, as long as someone, no one's trying to outdraw each other, you know, that's the other thing is you could get into this contest. You're refining each other. It's not notches on a belt. That's a, that's a. <laughs> Anyway. Hey, hey, men like some good competition. <laughs> Sometimes, and we're, we're going to get into that a little bit later on. We're going to be talking about why men are leaving the church. But I remember at the end of this process, as I'm, as I'm thinking about, my, my last holdout was really on the, what about the popes that committed heresy? Well, if mm-hmm. you do more research, you find out that that's, there's only three that have ever really been accused of it, two of whom very clearly didn't, which leaves you really with one, and that was Honorius I, and as you're... I found the letters, but I found them in, in Greek and German. I couldn't do the Greek as well as I'd like to. Could you give the clear example for those who are maybe struggling today with the current climate of the church? Well, Honorius believed, I was told, in a heresy called monothelitism, big M word, which basically means one will. And Jesus has two wills, the will of God and the will of man. Mm-hmm. And he always perfectly subjects his human will to God's will, but he's always got both wills. And as you read the letters, it became very clear to me that uh, no, he's talking about there's the one will, but there's the two wills as well. 
And I remember sitting up on top of my roof because we had, at seminary, we had chairs brought up there, plastic chairs and tables and things. Mm-hmm. And you sit there and look at the Golden Gate Bridge over in San Francisco. Uh, I told you it was a liberal seminary. Uh, <laughs> Golden Gate Bridge and the sun's setting. And I'm realizing as the sun's going down, that's so representative of my career because I, I, <laughs> I have to become Catholic. And it, becoming Catholic when you're a Presbyterian minister kind of ruins your career as a Presbyterian mm-hmm. minister. And I, I remember thinking this is the end. And I put my, my career on hold and I took a year's break from going into Vanderbilt, which turned into 25. <laughs> so that... Um, you had a couple of kids and a wife in the meantime. Well, life then happens. Right. And, and as life happened, God continued to unfold for me. So I started to... I was brought into this group called St. Joseph Radio. And uh, in fact, I was asked to speak for an hour. And so like a good Presbyterian, I wrote on an hour speech. It was boring. <laughs> but what saved me was the question and answers because I could actually go back and forth. And so I've been doing radio ever since, along with teaching for the Catholics. And so I had taught then for the 25 years for the Catholics and did radio on the side. And that's what I've been able to do. So what do I do on the radio? I answer or talk about questions that Catholics are talking about. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that that converts have to do, that Catholics who are born in the faith don't necessarily have to do the same way. We have to know that what we did was right because we're always being faced with somebody. When they find out you're a convert, well, why are you staying when you've got X, Y, and Z? What about this topic? What about this? And so you have to know it. Yeah, the converts end up so on fire. And I mean, at times there end up being little gaps or misunderstandings that occur along the way. But there's a deeper level of responsibility that I think converts take on that sometimes cultural Catholics or maybe going through the motions, unfortunately, have missed in their catechization or self-education that should be ongoing, right? Every one of the apostles was a convert. (laughs) Augustine was a convert. I mean, we've got some important converts that come along here. We also have our issues. Mm. Uh, I remember once uh, Father Benedict Rochelle, uh, who's been uh, passed away now for several years, but uh, one of the first interviews I did with him, he stopped in the middle of the interview and said, you know what? You are still very Protestant. You're dressed up in (laughs) Catholic clothes, but underneath there's a lot of Protestantism still in you. And then he continued on with the conversation, and it's like, where did that come from? And after we're off air, you're going, Father, what were you talking about? What did I do? (laughs) It it was life-changing because I had to understand if this wasn't just about coming to an intellectual conclusion, it was transformation into into that Eucharistic Catholic being. Becoming Catholic is not a head change that can start it. Becoming Catholic is a heart change, and that's your body and soul, that whole anthropology. Mm-hmm. That's Eucharist. Mm-hmm. You become part of the Eucharist when you become Catholic, or you haven't really become Catholic yet. Mm-hmm. And I know people, and I'm sure you know them as well, where they're closet Catholics. Their heart is there, mm-hmm. but it's intellectual pride, right? Or a form yeah. of authority that's preventing them from making that step. I plan to have a very good conversation with C.S. Lewis sometime. You know. <laughs> Best Catholic that never became. <laughs> there are a lot of them, though, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, pride is a sin of all sins, I think, and sometimes we're not always open based on our formation and upbringing and pre-prejudices, essentially. So you asked a question about people today, and as my wrestling apply, might apply to, to them, I think today we have a crisis in in. Christianity. Uh, 
Right. And it really comes down to the idea that what is core about Christianity, both in Catholics and Protestants, is this idea that we believe we are not alone and we are eternal. Mm-hmm. We have details that are different, very important details. But in the end, we believe that God is part of our lives with the Holy Spirit. And that's fundamentally different from what our society is trying to teach and preach. We just had a law passed in Quebec not long ago that says that if you are a public employee, you may not wear any kind of religious paraphernalia. You may not wear a yarmulke if you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. You may not wear a cross or a, a whatever if you're any other religion. You, you cannot wear anything like that. We're heading that way in our own society. Right. And the fact that we have this poor baker that is being constantly in Colorado <laughs> sued and sued and sued. <laughs> they won't take time? no for an answer. But yes, that's going to be overturned. But don't get your hopes up. Right. Uh, if, you're looking, if you're looking long ball, long yeah. ball, we, we're going to continue to face Persecution. this this crisis. But also from the inside, you know, I was mentioning earlier, a lot of people identify as Catholic and I say they identify as Catholic. It's not just popular language. It's a popular way of living. They identify as Catholic, but they work as a secularist. Yes. And I think that's so common. And that's why we hear things such as, you know, I'm Catholic, but I really think the church needs to change on this. But you mentioned it's not just Catholics, it's Christians overall. You know, I love my faith. I'm Christian, but I think the Bible got this wrong. This is the attitude of today, whether it's same-sex marriage, abortion, whether it's salvation, heaven, hell, purgatory, you name it. These are the common things that we hear people say. Was there anything for you where you said, I think the church has got it wrong here? Yes. Uh, there, There were many things that I thought the church had gotten wrong. The problem is, it's not that the church gets it wrong. It's that the people that are talking about what the church teaches <laughs> yeah. will get it wrong or incomplete or fourth grade level. Right. And that's a real problem because we have a lot of Catholics that have their faith end essentially when they get first communion, let, 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 let alone confirmation. You know, the standard joke that I, I learned when I, I went and studied canon law for, for a semester up in Catholic U, just on the side. Mm-hmm. And one of the professors came in there, he told this joke about, how there was, a, of course, a, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi up in this New England town, and they all had churches or, or a synagogue with these high rafters, and the bats were always in there. They couldn't get rid of them. They tried everything, <laughs> noises, poisons, everything. Finally, they all meet on the golf course, and the priest walks up and says, oh, I got rid of all my bats. I figured it out. I said, how did you do that? He said, I got smart. I brought down all the bats. I baptized and confirmed them, and they haven't been back to my church since. <laughs> Very dark Catholic humor, but the reason it's funny is because it's, it's so close to the truth. Well, and that's the truth. Even just living in California, we have so many fallen away Catholics in the state of California. I mean, almost every day I encounter another fallen away Catholic with either anger and resentment or just uh, stopped going. Every Catholic in the Assembly and Senate. Uh, uh, <laughs> not, not pretty much. <laughs> pretty but here's much. the deal. This is what's so important, I think, for people to remember as maybe they themselves are struggling with the teaching of the church and need to research, ask questions and debate more. Or maybe they know other people who are. We have the fullness of revelation. Nothing is going to change about the Catholic faith. You may have a renegade priest giving ill-advised and bad sermons, right? Or bishops living not in accord with the virtues of the Catholicism, right? But there's nothing new. We might clarify or better yet explain it 
using the current language of the time, but it doesn't change. It's timeless. I'll, I'll give you the example that hit me it was purgatory because I always was a little uncomfortable with God's concentration camp, <laughs> which is how it was presented to me. Wow. I mean, if I've you not think heard about that it, no, no, that, that's because it was presented to me by Protestants right. originally. So that's what came <laughs> with me in here. But what really hit me hard was John Paul II and his Wednesday audiences about 20 years ago when he touched on heaven, hell, and purgatory. Mm-hmm. And he was sophisticated about it. It's a process. Right. And that's what hit home Purging. for me. Purging. And that's the point, is yes. that it's not that the Catholic Church gets it wrong, but a lot of people are wrong on what the Catholic Church really teaches. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. I think it's Fulton Sheen. No one hates a Catholic. People just hate what they think Catholicism is. Yes. And that's where we have a responsibility in the midst of persecution, in the midst of extreme secularism, and even within the church wanting to change. Be Catholic. Know what your faith teaches. And I think that we can't continue to act as if it's okay not to study it. You wouldn't meet someone and say, hey, let me know your first name, your last name, your favorite color, and that's it. No, we want to get to know more about another person. And that's how it should be about our faith. Without fear. Be not afraid was John Paul's motto. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Rick Howick is back in studio with us for our last segment here. Rick, you are a convert to the Catholic faith. You've grown up and lived in the Christian world as not a Catholic. After years of working in Catholic education, especially with young boys and old alike, we're seeing a crisis right now where many men feel like there's no place for them in Catholicism. I think there's a lot of merit to it, um, but there's this lack of identity, whether it's allowing men to be men or it's issues with just allowing, you know, things to not be so feminized within the church. What are your thoughts? There, there's a book out and i'm trying to remember who it was from um it, the, the title is answers to the catholic man crisis. crisis yeah and there was an article that came out not long ago that kind of summarized part of that catholic churches to men you're not welcome here it's an excellent article and we're going to hit on some of those points would you agree with these points before we dive in yeah i i, I would and it was one of the reasons why i wanted to mention it uh, yeah. and i'm sorry i didn't mean to step no, on, go on for what it. we're doing i was looking at it he gave four points and the four points i thought yeah those are good points the fourth point is what I would start, though, and it's the parishes that have no brotherhood. Mm. We have the Knights of Columbus, and <laughs> the good news, bad news about that is right. we have the Knights of Columbus, and only the Knights of Columbus and for I have most to people. Say, I have the utmost respect for the Knights yeah, of Columbus, but absolutely. the Knights themselves know that young men are not joining, or they're joining and not showing up to meetings. There's a lack of brotherhood, which is what this article points out. And, and this is something interesting, because I, I come at it from a Protestant perspective. I had been a Protestant in ministry. Because I was in seminary, so I mm-hmm. part of that is doing a, a, a part-time job as a as a seminarian, where I was a pastor's assistant for a couple of years at a Presbyterian church. And we had, for example, amongst many things in this small compared to Catholics, a small church of only a couple hundred families, but they're all active. And the men were active. And I remember we had men's breakfast on Tuesday mornings at seven o'clock in the morning, and you'd have two dozen men show up for this thing every week. And they would come, and the pastor would be there, and there would be some just talk, and then there would be a guided discussion, and then they would be good for the next week. And that was a way for men to bond with each other, to have time with each other, to talk about what it is to deal with their teenage kids or to 
to work through sadnesses or my wife just was diagnosed with cancer and they're, they're able to talk it through and be brothers to one another. That isn't what happens in most of the organizations the Catholic Church does anymore. Mm. It may have been at one time, but it hasn't been my experience so far in which, the Catholic Church. Which also appeals to the importance of having groups that are male and female only. We need to get back to the idea that men are a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that masculinity uh, is a good thing. Testosterone is a good thing. Uh, and yes, testosterone makes a difference uh, in the lives of men. It's one of the reasons why we do what we do. And one of the reasons why the world is the way the world has become. And hey, testosterone has a different, makes a difference in the lives of women. We, uh, I appreciate men for who they are. And when we appreciate men for who they are, they thrive and become better men. Well, and then that comes back to the first point that this person, this author makes, uh, which is that there is no real challenge that's open for men. Yeah. Men want to have a project. They want something to do. And I love this story that he tells in, you know, he mentions, okay, there's no challenge. Well, he talks about how, okay, we got this group of men together, men and women, right? And they're talking about, well, how can we evangelize? And one of the guys says, okay, let's take the catechism of the Catholic church, write this nice letter inviting all of these pastors to read the catechism of the Catholic church. So they understand what Catholics actually think. We're not trying to convince you of anything just to have respect. Well, some of the women in the group thought that this was offensive and would offend people and so it wasn't done and so the men leave they get frustrated they have new bold ideas that are shot down and that really is the case in a lot of dioceses i've had the privilege of being in a couple of different dioceses and i've seen some differences but i've also seen some similarities and that goes to point two which is the bureaucratic organizational structure that is so stifling <laughs> in most dioceses they're based on the idea of safety. We're, we're, we're not going to offend anybody. And we're going to do only the things that are safe, which means you're never going to have a man want to do anything because I'm sorry, men, are, men want to take a risk in order to achieve yeah. something. They're emasculated immediately the moment they walk into any of those meetings. And that's what's frustrating because then men yet again say, well, I tried. I got involved. I stepped up. Nothing happened. They are literally at their core. Men are being told, as you are, you are not welcome. So they can't do any projects. They're caught up in red tape. They're they're discouraged when it comes to being able to do anything new or bold. Mm. Uh, so what about the experience on Sunday? So let's. what a man wants to hear is the reality of what life is about, and it's salvation. If I'm going to hell, tell me about it. Mm-hmm. And what do we talk about? Some sort of a nice, gentle social justice issue. <laughs> and God bless the priests, but they really need to be encouraged to talk to men about reality, about... Call to conversion, eradicating to conversion. sin from their lives. I'm sorry, but, but men are very visual. And mm-hmm. the, the epidemic of pornography is incredible. You don't hear talked about it, in that. It, it is it is not talked about, and it mm. needs to be talked about, even if you're talking about it from the perspective of looking at its opposite in chastity, and trying to talk about why chastity is so important, right. and why that builds relationship between you and your wife, or you and your future wife, mm-hmm. if you're not married yet, and don't even know who she is yet. But the bottom line is, if you don't train a man to be chaste, he will not be. Mm-hmm. And we don't go there. We don't do manly things in mass 
anymore. Well, and here's the thing. I love this quote. I wrote it down earlier and I turn back to it so often because of my work in chastity, but it ultimately has to do with conversion. It's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2342. I'm going to f- paraphrase here, but it essentially talks about how self-mastery is a very, very long and exacting process of work. And you can actually never consider it achieved, accomplished, complete, because ultimately our conversion is ongoing and we have to have respect for different stages in our lives. There needs to be more in-depth, intentional sin ratification. This is where you'll hear people say, but I keep, why do I go to confession? I keep doing the same sins over Mm -hmm. and over again. Oh no, sir. Just like a master carpenter who's learning their trade better and better all the time, right. you're learning how to get past those temptations. If you fall down once, you're going to get back up. But hopefully you're also now taking the advice of a very good priest who is giving you ideas on how to really get past it and isn't just doing mm-hmm. the six pack of grace and go and here's your three Our Fathers <laughs> and three Hail Marys, but is actually trying to work with you as a spiritual director so that you can hone those right. skills as a man so that you can gradually reach toward that that habitual grace mm-hmm. that will help you be holy. Yeah. There's a reason why men really do want to be engaged. And it's because they they want to be holy, but they don't want, don't, don't give me wimpy stuff. Sorry, mm-hmm. it just isn't going to do. That's Rick Howick. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. So let's get into the solution. I'm going to say here's one of the solutions that I am seeing over and over again in the blogosphere, right, in the conversations, in personal friendships, and even in my own husband, that is people are going back to the traditional Latin mass. There's a bolder preaching. There's more serious conversation having to do with sin. And the tradition and the discipline is so fervent. I think if I hadn't walked into the mass that I did when my friend took me to mass, different mass, but took me to mass for the first time, and it was at a church that still did the, the Latin mass back before it was okay for everyone to do it. Right. Back when, and this was Father Kozina, and he was from Serbia, so he, he kind of talked like Boris Karloff, you know? <laughs> and when I walked in, when we, when we, he, his sermon was on hell, and he shouted it, you know, you're going to go to hell! And it was this, tr- and I'm sorry for the, for the audio level there, but that was him. He would, but it was bold, and it was reflective of the deeper mystery that can be conveyed in a good Latin mass. Mm-hmm. Now that particular mass wasn't Latin as I recall, because I did, they did three masses in English, a Novus Ordo and the Trinitite mass. Mm-hmm. That one I was, she, she took me to the light mass <laughs> and he preached and he preached what I knew could be preached having been a Protestant mm-hmm. that I hear only infrequently from priests, unfortunately, in the Catholic Church. The priests who are willing to preach and challenge when they preach are really very good, Mm -hmm. and we need to encourage those priests to do that, like Father Cosina, who was willing to say the word hell and mean it in a sermon. And maybe you need to put your finger on the pulse of where is a Catholic church that a lot of people are gravitating to, even if it's a little bit further of a drive. And I can tell you, we're driving a little further in order to make that happen in our own lives. And there are a lot of people, but it's worth the sacrifice. We are at a point in life where we need to be filled up on Sundays. Not We're coming to worship, absolutely, but we need to be challenged and called to conversion. We do. The whole point behind Christ's entrance into our life is to ask the question, 
Do you love me? If you do, prove it for the rest of your life. (laughs) I loved you to death. (laughs) I want you to love me to life. I love that. I love that. Rick, it's been wonderful having you. People can find you and more about you at radiotrending.com where your profile is. You're the host of the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Mention just a couple topics that you guys often discuss on your show. Oh, gosh. Anything that's going on in the Catholic Church in the Diocese of Orange, whether that is the building of the the inside of the cathedral, which is opening up in July, right. or it's a some sort of a law that's being passed like... SB 360, you name it, we talk about it. Having to do with priests having to break the seal of the confessional. Please be active, be aware of any calls to action. Thanks for being with us. Head over to radiotrending.com to learn more about my great guest Rick Cowick and the other episodes he joins me for. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit radiotrending.com. That's radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 